0: hi everybody jp here want to take a moment to tell you about st john associates they're a great recruiting firm that was recommended to us by one of our listeners they've been around for over 30 years and they match thousands of physicians with practices and healthcare systems across the country they have an experienced team that works in all specialties including neurosurgery and orthopedic spine surgery and they have close connections with employers across the country they will look at your cv They'll match you with practices based on your preferences for geography and lifestyle. And all of this comes at no cost to the physician job applicant. So just visit them at stjohnjobs.com slash nspod to get started with your job search today if you're in the market. Again, that's stjohnjobs.com slash nspod. Following that link will let them know that you found them through us. This is the Neurosurgery
1: Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I'm absolutely delighted today to be joined by, of course, JP. We're reunited. And by Dr. Kindu, who's a fellow at UC San Francisco, uh, who is doing functional neurosurgery. And we know that UCSF is a fantastic functional program. We've heard from many folks who've trained there. And um, we'd like to get into it as to why that's the best subspecialty and how to do that. So, Dr. Kundu, you want to introduce yourself to our audience? Tell us where you trained, where you went to medical school, uh, what are your hobbies? Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Delighted to and thanks for having me. Um, So I I grew up in Maryland, I did my undergrad in uh, biomedical engineering at Case Western in uh, Ohio. And then I did an MD PhD and MSTP program at University of Wisconsin, Madison, my PhD is in cognitive neuroscience. And that's kind of where, where I really um, decided to do start th- th- thinking more seriously about functional neurosurgery and, of course, neurosurgery in general. So did my uh, residency at University of Utah in Salt Lake City and um, i did actually an enfolded um, year of functional neurosurgery fellowship there with john ralston Um, and he's actually he's at the brigham now um, the harvard hospital and this year i am working with dr phil Starr and edward chang and doris wong um, at ucsf doing the fellowship it's in stereotactic and functional neurosurgery and epilepsy surgery
1: that's fantastic. I mean, I I'm thinking back to Case Western Reserve had some of the earliest bionic uh, neuro neuro machine interfaces, more like in the yeah. spinal cord, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Madison, of course, uh, my son Patrick goes there, and it's got a fantastic program in in the area you studied. So tell us about like how you took this to the idea that you were going to do a fellowship in this area. And when did you know that was going to be the case? Like at what year of residency were you like, this is definitely the way I'm going?
2: Well, so I I guess pretty much always knew that I was going to need a fellowship um, or wanted to do a fellowship, I guess I should say. Um, and that kind of ties a little back to my research interests, which just broadly are um, well, one aspect is studying neuro- mechanisms of neuromodulation, which, of course, is a, a, one of the bases of um, treatment for functional neurosurgery, DDS, et cetera. But also studying um, circuits underlying cognition, like memory, and recording from intracran- intracranially from patients and studying circuits that control memory. And so I'd always wanted – there was a secret place in my heart where I always wanted to come to UCSF, study with um, Phil Starr, Eddie Chang, and then some of the other scientists – so I had always kind of wanted to do a fellowship, but um, just to be able to work you know, with, with, with um, these people in particular, but just I, I had always been on, had an academic track in mind. And um, uh, most, I, I would say, majority of people in the academic world doing a lot of research work and a heavy research work um, do have post-grad fellowships.
0: Yeah, you know, it's very interesting and exciting for me to, to talk to you. Currently, they're doing Dr. Starr's fellowship. We actually had him on the show um, last year during our series on neurosurgery and cognition, um, talking about kind of the, the basics of functional neurosurgery. And in fact, as as we were talking before the show started, uh, you were recommended to us to talk about this fellowship path and the, the approach to functional fellowship and training by Ian Cahigas, who trained in Miami there with Dr. Wang, and was himself a fellow under Dr. Starr. I Mm -hmm. I wonder if you Mm -hmm. can tell us, you know, we were talking before the show about who this is geared toward and how it's kind of for those in the early stages of training who are thinking about going into functional. Um, As you said, you always envisioned a postgraduate fellowship as part of your career path. What was it that drew you to functional itself? Did you go into neurosurgery knowing that you wanted to do that subdiscipline?
2: Yeah, I did. I mean, I think when I when I started residency, I um I had a strong interest in functional nerve surgery, also pediatrics, ped's epilepsy in particular, and and actually skull based surgery as well. So, I was kind of between the three. Um and you know, just kind of needed a little more exposure to all three of those things over residency to figure out, okay, yeah, functional is definitely what I want to do. And yeah, the fellowship, you know, okay, I want to pursue a fellowship in that. Um, And the things that drew me to it were just um, how well the, you know, the, the cases and patient population and the research in those areas meshed with my personal, like, scientific interests.
1: So Bernali, one of the reasons we're we're doing this um, series is because, you know, when I was in training, the idea was that all neurosurgeons are trained in everything, right? So that there's no, there's no limitation. Let's say if I were to do some pediatric epilepsy tomorrow, which I would never do, um, that I would be allowed to do that from a legal and regulatory perspective. Um, And similarly, if you wanted to do a T10 to pelvis, you could do the same, right? But because we are getting super specialized and because you yourself through your entire adult career have gone in this tack, you have special insight, and you said you did time in Utah, dedicated maybe a year or more to this, and maybe you're doing research on the side during your residency, and now you're doing your postgraduate residency. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences in those two experiences? Because we are interviewing, for example, people who are doing spine-infolded versus eighth-year fellowships, right? What is the difference in your experience between when you did it, and, and tell us when you did it in years? And you're, I assume, eighth year now at UCSF.
2: Yeah, I am. Well, so it for me, it was sort of um, a circumstance that it ended up being two years of fellowship. I think that one, for to be able to do um, functional nurse surgery at a high level and epilepsy surgery, one probably needs at least a year of... Um, dedicated training in this area because it is so different from the kind of general neurosurgery that we spend most of residency focusing on. So it's really different from doing craniotomies for, from tumor sections, obviously from spine surgery. And a lot of those skills are, are not translated to what, what is nitty gritty and super important in functional neurosurgery, which, um, which part of it is understanding imaging, the details of imaging fusion, um, and stereotaxy, how frames work, what, you know, details of how robots work and like trade-offs between that. So all of that requires a dedicated, I think, at least a year of, of training. And um, so for me, it ended up that my chief year, um, and I think it could have worked any e- either way, but, um, My chief year ended up being my sixth year of residency, and I um, was basically trying to figure out what to do with that seventh year. And the way you know, as as everyone knows, with chief year, you're kind of like at that point generally well trained, and so it was kind of a good point to then get into the special subspecialty and um, obtain start to get start to think about. Like the details of functional neurosurgery. And so that's why I did my Enfolded Fellowship. It, and it ended up being that they're both CAST approved, but my my Enfolded Fellowship was heavily um, epilepsy, stereotactic, like SEEG um, and stereotactic surgery geared toward epilepsy and then also movement disorders. That's like the patient population that Dr. Rolston saw. And I also had significant time to do research. Um, and then the, the, the postgrad fellowship is something that I had to interview for, basically in my PGY five. Uh, no, sorry, PGY fourth year. So, um, or actually, transitioned from four to five, fifth year. So, PGY fifth year, I had to do applications and interviews for a postgraduate fellowship. So that was already set, kind of in stone. from From the end of fifth year on, I knew where I was going to be. Um, and so that sixth year turned into a full year of Enfolded fellowship. But I had like I could have done maybe some spine also or some other things, and it, it ended up being two years of of subspecialty training. But uh, subspecialty think, training. But you you definitely need at least a year of it.
0: Yeah, I and I wonder now that you are halfway through your postgraduate fellowship, maybe you could explain to us and our listeners what what you're getting out of the fellowship, because I, I know, you know, I'm halfway through residency myself now, exploring different fellowship opportunities and, and talking with senior residents, talking about people in different fellowships. And there's all these expectations and hopes and ideas that you have when you're in residency about doing this fellowship will get me X. Will it get me in the door for a certain kind of job? Will it get me a technical skill that you know, there are some surgeries done at this other institution that aren't done where I'm training for residency? Or will it get me exposure to clinical thinking and the decision making and how to organize your clinic and and kind of learn administrative skills that you don't get in residency? So maybe you could talk for our listeners a bit about what your mindset was going into the fellowship and then what skills Ah, uh, you're actually learning what things you're actually being exposed to and and if that met or exceeded your expectations.
2: Yeah, sure. So um I guess for the a couple of things with this with this year's fellowship that I'm kind of gaining that I didn't have um, from after graduation is um being a, basically be taking my skill level to the. Uh, you know, to the next level, I guess. Um, like for for example, with movement disorders, um, there's there's awake surgery and there's a sleep imRI based surgery. and at Utah, we did a lot of imRI based movement disorders, DBS electrode placement. And um, this year, I'm getting far better trained in, well, some some in MRI, but MRI based, but also in awake MER recording. So that's sort of a s- specialized skill and it becomes handy in certain situations. And so that's something that I'm learning how to do. Um, Also, there's high-frequency ultrasound ablations that um, are now used for, for example, Parkinson's-based tremor, essential tremor. That's something that I did a little of at Utah and I'm gonna be doing more of at UCSF. Um, Awake craniotomies um, with um, uh, both for epilepsy and also for tumor resections. Um, that's something I didn't do a lot during residency. And um, so that language mapping and that skill set, something that I'm gaining this year, for example. So those are some some things. And then also um, some independence with running um, you know, my own room versus um, during residency. So once you're a fully trained neurosurgeon, you can do cases on your own. Um, and so that's kind of nice to gain some independence. And there's other fellowships um, where that, and something to consider when someone's looking at fellowships is, you know, are they going to, I'm not on call per se, but I can run my own room, but some fellowships will require, um, the fellow to do either general call or some sort of call. And that's kind of good practice to go into, do, go in to prepare you for, for a job. Um, and then, um, you know, doing some extra research, um, that's something I'm, I'm going to be looking into with the, um, with some of the devices that Dr. Starr works on. And so also certain, you know, fellowships will have specific research opportunities that, uh, you know, a resident might be interested in. Oh, so oh, actually, sorry. And one other thing I wanted to mention that's specific to functional is this year I'm spending a little more time with the neurologists and um, it's something that I never done before during residency. So spending some time with movement disorders, neurologists and like really figuring out like, how to do a good movement exam and know who has Parkinson's and who doesn't, because say you're going into practice at an institution, you're kind of, you're the only person you're building a practice. You don't want to operate on people that don't have true Parkinson's. And it takes a little bit to, it takes a little bit to see a range of patients to know who to operate on. You don't always want to, you do depend on your neurology colleagues, obviously. And, and, and similarly for, for epilepsy, you depend on your neurology colleagues, but I'm, I'm spending some time looking at EEG, ECOG data, and, and just general neuro, neurology exams. So that's another thing to think about, which I have an opportunity to hear.
1: So Bernali, tell me, tell me a little bit about this other question that is in the minds of many neurosurgeons. So there is uh, abundant evidence, and there has been for a long time, to suggest that functional neurosurgery will be the future of neurosurgery. It will be uh, the, the new source of procedures, the new vistas of treatments. And uh, if we were to look ahead 50 to 100 years, you'd be like, wow, it's gonna probably be mostly functional ish type neurosurgery. And, and so that's very exciting. But then take it back to this issue of, you know, for generalists who's doing basic functional surgery, whether it be epilepsy surgery, whether it be deep brain stimulation, whether it be some kinds of pain management, right? they may be thinking, well, I can do all these procedures too. And of course, we're not going to speak to folks that are already in practice now because you can't turn back time. But for the young surgeon who's still in training, they're thinking, well, do I really need to do this fellowship to be able to do these procedures? Or can't I just adopt them later? And what do you think? And I know you haven't really been in full practice yet as an attending completely, but what do you think are the real advantages of having done dedicated time in this arena? Besides the obvious, obviously you're getting more exposure, but do you think there really is a difference that it couldn't be say like John Paul could a year or two into practice say, I'm going to start doing this stuff too. It's pretty well defined. The procedure is pretty simple. So I'm just going to start doing it.
2: That is a really interesting question. I think that um, it would probably be hard to start from scratch. You know, I think that, if someone wanted to pick up, um, for example, like doing DBS for movement disorders and they had a means of finding good patients, um, you know, I think it would require some training with somebody to know, you know, good practices on electrode placement and targeting and what is like the most up-to-date means of of targeting the nucleus, et cetera. So I think that like basic things you know, can be, can be learned, but one must find a means to, to learn how to do that properly.
0: So I wonder, I I know we talked briefly about your process through residency, kind of the timeline for you interviewing and setting up this fellowship, but I wonder if you could speak again to uh, those in early residency or approaching mid-residency who need to start making these decisions. What was your timeline like and what was, your process, like, you know, you know, the nitty gritties, how did you reach out to people? How did you get in touch with potential fellowship spots? And what did the logistics of that process look like? Obviously you landed a very competitive a very prestigious fellowship in this subspecialty. So I I think this is something I always say, whenever you want to know how to do something, ask someone who just succeeded at it recently, right? Because so many of us have attending mentors who went through this process Decades ago, but you were right at the tip of the spear. So maybe you could speak to what the timeline and what the process is like for anyone interested in following in your footsteps.
2: Sure, sure. Um, so basically for postgrad fellowships, um, you want to start thinking about it two years in advance um, to graduation. And, um, what I did and, um, places you can find a list of fellowships are like the ASSFN, um, the American functional, the American society for stereotactic and functional neurosurgery. Um, they have a website with all the fellowships, whether or not they're cast accredited and there's like contact information there. So, um, I just prepare a CV and maybe a little blurb about your interests And just contact the fellowship director and see if they um, would like, you know, if it's a good match, if they if they're willing to um, interview you. Most of the fellowships, there's some sort of interview process sometimes. For me, it required um, it it was a little it it was exceptional for me because it was the start of covid. But um, I I did go in person interview and give a talk um, for, for a lot of these fellowships and, um, had like, there was a very formal sort of interview application process. Um, so things to think about are it, with functional neurosurgery there's several categories so I'm pretty traditional and I'm doing epilepsy and movement disorders, but there and, and but there's also pain. We didn't talk about that at all, but a lot of people may specialize so you want to think I guess about what kind of areas you want to learn more about so if you want to specialize in for example, movement disorders and pain, that's possible and 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 so maybe find a fellowship that um, would give you access to, you know, complex pain procedures like cordotomies, dress procedures, go so so, or 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 if it's facial pain, then facial pain cases like MVDs or or a range of percutaneous procedures, SRS. So so. Um, so the fellowships listed there's going to be some combination of movement disorders, epilepsy, pain, spasticity and like psychosurgery patients available. And so depending on your interests, you you can, you know, select several that are going to be good matches and and reach out to the, the directors and then and then, you know, go out an interview.
0: So we kind of touched on this earlier, um, considering the, the different roles and the, the indications, if you will, for doing this fellowship, but I wonder from your perspective as someone entering the field, uh, just coming now out of training and postgraduate training, you know, if you consider other fields within neurosurgery, um, the general neurosurgery, of course, but then if you look at spine surgery, for example, anyone graduating a neurosurgical residency, but particularly perhaps at a place like Miami where Dr. Wang is, coming out who wants to do community spine practice is more than ready to do so without postgraduate training. Um, So thinking about kind of the future directions of functional neurosurgery, let's say there's someone coming out of a program like UCSF for residency or Emory, who wants to go out and get a community job, a private practice job, not at the cutting edge at an academic center, but somewhere where there's a good infrastructure, a good neurology team, and, you know, a movement disorders team, they want to do DBS. Do you think that person needs to do a fellowship in 2023? Or do you think the need for postgraduate specialized training just to do community functional neurosurgery may rise in the coming years?
2: It's a good question. It's a good question. I think that it depends on what your residency training how comfortable you are at graduation with doing the surgeries so you know by default like sp- spine surgery is like half of the required cases that we have to do to graduate um right. so um and as you know with cast approved programs at least there's i don't know what exact numbers but they do the things we have to submit are the number of dbs cases i've done or epilepsy so you've got a you've got to you know, be able have done enough cases independently enough that you're going to be comfortable um, placing the electrode in a good place, because if it's not well placed, then, you know, it comes back to the neurologist, right? That the whatever placements are not working, and then it's a whole thing. So, um, you know, if you have enough training and you're comfortable placing electrodes well, and they're going to work for the patient, they're going to have good outcomes. These are, as you know, elective surgeries. And, um, you know, the patient outcomes are going to be well documented. And you're working very closely with neurologists, and they've had their those patients, their whole rest of their adult lives, right? So you just have to. You just have to be comfortable with. I think the number, of your the experience that you have to be able to get good outcomes, um, and and if the residency that you're part of has like enough cases and you have had that exposure, then and you know the neurology team is strong, maybe that could be um, that could be something you pursue. But I will also say that patients, you know, they're they are looking for people that are fellowship trained, you know, they're going to look at your background and, and want to make sure that you're, you're qualified. And so just like their spine fellowships also, you know, have that, having that training just the, helps, helps with that.
0: Right. Well, as we bring this to a close, you know, typically when we talk to someone about a specific field with a neurosurgery, we always like to give our guests the opportunity to make the case and kind of make a pitch for why everyone should want to go into functional. But I think anyone who has seen a Parkinson's patient with DBS and then the the classic demonstration that they do in in medical schools around the country, you turn the battery off, you turn the battery back on. It's a miracle before your eyes. You know, words cannot make the case better than that living example. Another thing I like to ask people, and we've asked Dr. Reese Cosgrove, we we asked Dr. Phil Starr, what do you see on the horizons? functional neurosurgery, but obviously they've had long careers. they're experts. They um, may have a different view for the future and horizons of the field than someone just entering it. So as someone right out of training, now doing postgraduate training, starting down the long road of specialization in functional neurosurgery, I wonder what do you see ahead? What strange and incredible procedures do you predict? within your career span as you enter functional neurosurgery?
2: Um, you know, I think, and I'm sure Phil touched on this, Dr. Starr, about adapt- the the development of adaptive closed-loop stimulation. So um, what that is, is like, uh, for example, with the, Medtron- with the Medtronic system, there's a new battery called the Percept PC, and it has the ability to sense e- electrical signals and then the hope is eventually that it would be able to stimulate based on that um, biomarker. So um, that's, you know, currently very, much, it's explored mostly in the context of movement disorders, but that concept is going to um, increasingly develop. There's been several publications on, for example, depression. So um, like Samir Seth's group also work out of UCSF showing, you know, it's almost like an epilepsy surgery where they have the, patients with depression get implanted with an SEEG montage, they record mood and electrical signals, and then find this person's personal biomarker for sad moods and and modulate it to make happy moods based on stim parameters, and then implant DBS in particular, electrodes in particular locations to modulate mood. I mean, I think clearly those, like that is um, an area that is going to be growing over the course of my career, not just, well, uh, um, certain pathologies, um, and um, maybe maybe also um, also just uh, hardware advancements, algorithm development, um, just for our understanding of this so-called like circuitopathies or oscillopathies, epilepsy and Parkinson's and OCD all fall into this category of network disorders. And um, what I think is the most exciting part about being in this field is seeing our understanding of the neural bases of these oscillopathies develop and, um, and developing devices to be able to treat those.
0: Wow. Um, you know, every time I hear uh, one of my friends here at Rush, John Pierce, he's the year ahead of me in residency, and he's uh, going into functional as well. And he's talked to me about these closed loop systems as well. It always reminds me of the Michael Crichton novel Terminal Man, which, of course, in any Michael Crichton novel, it doesn't wind up well for the scientists, but uh, clear, clearly with a uh, cogent and considerate application, um, that could have immense uh, power for affecting patients with, with these diseases. I also have never heard the term oscillopathy before, but I love it because <laughs> it, is, uh, it is immediately clear what that means. And I love... Uh, a new use of a suffix that just makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that, that's very satisfying to hear a new word. Um, so thank you for sharing that with me. Um, but that's really exciting. Um, I love hearing the perspective of someone who's fully trained and fully interested in a niche field of any specialty, but also just at the beginning of the road, because I, I think um, you have less preconceived notions about what you're gonna find down that road when you haven't walked as much of it. And so it's very interesting to me to hear what you anticipate and what excites you about the career you're about to have. Um, and I will also say, if anyone who writes or produces Black Mirror is listening, I think there were about three ideas for an episode in uh, in what Bernali just said. So feel free to contact us. I will only take a small finder's fee for the proceeds of that episode. Uh, But with that, uh, Bernali, we want to thank you for your time coming on today. I'm sure anyone listening with even a hint of interest in functional neurosurgery learned a lot about uh, not only why, but how to approach uh, fellowship training in that subspecialty. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show.
2: Uh, My absolute pleasure. Thanks, JP. Um, And if anyone has any questions about this, uh, feel free to contact me too.
0: Great. Thank you. Disclaimer: time! The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.